Hi, CBC. Good to be with you this morning. Today's reading comes from Colossians chapter 4, 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about His mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here and changed. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Have a great day. Welcome to CBC this morning. Before we kick into some scripture, it's time for me to tell us how we're doing on the love backs. Guys, guess how we're doing? Not good, everybody. Let's get Baptist guilt and shame up in here right now, okay? And it's good for us. It's the first week. We typically are late, late sign-up church, and so we're all good. But just to let you know, we need everything, okay? <laughs> Absolutely everything. If you're watching online, we do a food drive every year so that kids have food to eat when Christmas break happens. Because certain groups of kids and families in our community, when school doesn't feed them, they have less food. And so for the month of November, we are doing a food drive. You can check it out on the events page at crossroadsbible.org, and you'll see what we need. And you can come up during the week or on Sunday mornings, and so we'll count with all the food that got brought in today that's not counted yet. We'll release numbers on Wednesday or Thursday of this week, and then we'll get back up here next Sunday, and I will continue to bring the Baptist out in me. And guilt and shame us all the way to victory, everybody, right? It's going to be so good. I can't wait. Um, it's for a good cause. And on the 29th, we're going to get together. We're going to pack a couple hundred boxes to feed kids over the holiday season, and we're going to celebrate that Jesus provides, and we're going to tell families that Jesus loves them through feeding them, which is one of my favorite ways. And so bring some food, check out what we need specifically online, and bring it up during the week or, or next Sunday. Okay? Sound good? Lovely. Now that I just brought some guilt and shame, guys, let's pray together, because that's what we need to do as a church. We say it every week. It's true. We, we need to put aside our critical culture in this moment and come here, like Delin talked about, and, and say, hey, God has something for us. There's purpose behind us being here. God's going to teach us who he is and form us into the image of Jesus because here's what we're talking about today. Our world needs it. And so we're going to spend some time at the onset and just pray. And I'll ask that, that you take some time and silently ask that the Holy Spirit does a work in your spirit this morning. I'll ask that you pray for me that God might use the preparation to further his message of hope. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for the time that we can have here. In the chaosness of the world, that you are good and you are constant. Whether we're watching online or whether we're watching later or whether we're in the room, Holy Spirit, use our time together to help us see more of you. To help us see our need for you and the need for you to be more prevalent in all of our spaces and places that we work and live in. And ask if you're comfortable, take just a couple seconds and ask that the Holy Spirit might show you more of God this morning and do a work in your spirit. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that God might use the preparation to help us see him more clearly this week as we walk through some text.
pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We're in Colossians chapter 4. This is our last week in the series. And yesterday, and then again today, I don't know if you guys have this, but on my iPhone, once a week it pops up my daily screen time usage, right? So this morning I'm sitting in my office and I'm preparing and I was going to use the stat from this last week, but I'll tell you what happened this morning. It popped up and it says your screen time last week was up 8%, averaging four hours and eight minutes a day, okay? Now, am I proud of that? Absolutely not. But let me tell you this, <laughs> two hours of that was, quote, and I looked it up because I got a little curious, two hours of that was on reading and reference. So can I call it my Kindle on my phone and you can judge me a little less in this space? And then I, I got to thinking, well, wh- what am I looking at so much on my phone? And is it just Google Maps and me trying to figure out how not to get stuck in traffic? Or, and I came to my social media, um, uh, a time spent on social media. And it was about, I don't know, 38-ish minutes a day. And then I started looking up people's time on social media. And here, here's why I say that is because I firmly believe, and I, again, I just watched this social dilemma documentary and I've been on it for a little while, but I think social media has a lot of goods and it has a lot of bads. I think we have all these phones in front of us that brings a lot of goods and they bring a lot of bads. I think one of the things that we have to fight against as a culture, we have to fight against the centrality of us in our place, in our culture, meaning that all the things that we have point to us being the center of our universe. We've created a culture of consumers. And there is goods there and there is bads there. But here's the problem. I look at my screen time. I look at my social media time. And I wonder if I'm making all the things around me before me instead of the other way around. I wonder if I'm creating a Charlie-centric universe. That's difficult. Because our phones and every advertisement screams that you are the center of. And everybody else's good is for you. I get on Instagram, which is my preferred platform, and everybody else's stories are for my good or pleasure. And if I don't like it, I'm like, why do they even post that? It's a waste of time. <laughs> it's not. It, it makes other people's lives about my life. That's the, center, that's the danger of social media, when we become the center of our universe. So let's broaden that a little bit. Not just me. Here's some stats for you. Uh, 16 to 24-year-olds, this is a study done a month ago, spend an average of three hours a day on social media. Projections for social media use estimates the average adult will spend six years and eight months of their life on social media. In the United States, the average person, regardless of demographics, spends two hours and three minutes a day on social media. This belief is creeping in our culture, or it's been here for a while, that we are consumers and everything out there revolves around me. It's a dangerous place to be. But see, I don't think it just stops with us and our phones and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I think it, it pervades all other aspects of our life. I think it pervades the church. There was a study done by the Barna Group. They're a group that handles research projects uh, when it comes to faith and culture. And they found something really interesting. I'll read you some results. They said that almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus, ranging from 95 to 97% across all generational groups. That means whether you're 9 or 90, you believe that being a witness about Jesus is of the utmost importance. You also believe that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus, 94 to 97%. That's a good thing. That means we believe that Jesus is good. That is where we need to start as a people. But it goes on. Millennials in particular feel equipped to share their faith with others. For instance, almost three quarters say they know how to respond when someone raises the question about faith and that they're gifted at sharing their faith with other people at a rate of 73%. It's higher than any other generational group. 
But then this next phrase gets me. It says, despite this, almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it's wrong to share your personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will share your faith as well. We have this juxtaposition of, I need to tell you what the church is for me, and it's good that it's for me, and I wish it's for you, but it's not my job to broach that place, that time. We create this culture, the centrality of me, and it pervades into our churches. So in Colossians, we've been going through how Christ forms us as a people. We've been going through the simple identity that we have in Jesus. Being raised with Christ shapes who we are and how we treat one another and how we treat our families and how we treat every aspect of social interaction in the family of God. Paul's going to pivot in our text today and he's going to tackle the question, what do we do with people that aren't in our faith family? And he's going to say, as he wraps up his letter, he's going to make a move from an inside perspective to an outside priority. He's going to say that churches are, communities of faith are formed from the inside out, but their focus should be on the outside in. He's going to make a call for people to share the hope of the gospel. He's going to make a call that says your church is about more than simply you. And he's going to say, you need to love what God is doing outside of your walls. Because it's far too easy make my life and my church and my Sunday morning about what I want and about me. Did we sing the song that I loved? Did we not? Did I feel safe? Did I not? Were people wearing the kind of clothes that I liked? Were they wearing Crocs? All of these things together, you know? And so what Paul does into, follow with me in chapter 4, verse 2. He starts by saying, if you want to cultivate a heart for others, here's what you do. One, be devoted to prayer, keeping alert in it with all thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us too, that God may open a door for the message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. So he starts in this shift from inward focus to outward focus. He starts by saying, be devoted to prayer, alert in all thanksgiving. Prayer is a theme in the book of Colossians. He starts the book of Colossians with a prayer. He's going to end the book of Colossians with how they're supposed to pray. So prayer is a specific theme and there's a purpose behind why he calls them to pray. He calls them to pray because fundamentally prayer does a couple things. One, what you pray for is what you end up caring for. And we see that throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. Jesus, when asked what the best good is, he said, love God and love your neighbor like yourself. And in the same section of scripture, he says to people, you've heard it said all these things. He said, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Don't just hate your enemy, pray for them radically different approach to how we're supposed to deal with people that aren't like us. Because he knew that if the chief end of following Jesus is built on the consistency of how we love insiders and outsiders, the way that we love the work of God outside of the walls of God is to pray for it. Because it will shape what we care for. If you don't like someone in your life, pray for them and watch how God changes from maybe not liking them to not liking them a little bit less over time. All right? It takes time. So he says, when he's talking about this whole section is about him being sent, he says, when you think of me, pray for me. Keeping alert, meaning it's really easy that the the verbiage there in the original language references to guard keeping watch at night because it's really easy to not and to forget. And so he's saying, be purposeful about prayer because prayer powerfully changes what you care for. And you have to be intentional about caring for things outside of yourself because it doesn't come as naturally. And so he says... Be devoted to prayer, keeping alert while in thanksgiving. At the same time, and he's going, so this is what I want you to do, pray. And here's why I said to pray. At the same time, pray for us too. 
that God may open a door for the message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for, when, for why I am in chains. He says, pray that God might open a door for me. A couple things there. <laughs> I think that maybe our pseudo-Baptist come-forward culture has changed how we see God working in our world. And what I mean by that is, if you're anything like me, I walked the aisle seven or eight times when I was a kid just to make sure it stuck, right? And so we, we believe that we come to God as he calls us, but the Bible seemingly tells a different story. Over and over throughout the Old and New Testament, the Bible tells a story of a God who is sent to us and finds us where we are, not that we find God where he is. Run back your Bible stories when you were a kid. From Adam in the garden at the very beginning, they sinned and in their shame they ran. That's what shame causes us to do, is run for the thing we're ashamed of. And so Adam and Eve ran in their sin and God, what did he do? He didn't wait, he went and found the story of Moses is Moses running from in his shame and God finding him. The story of Israel is Israel consistently in the Old Testament running from God and God running after Israel. It's a story of a God who says, I am sent for you, to you, to find you. So when, when he says in this moment, pray for me that God might open a door, we do that because we have to understand at the heart of God is God who sends himself to find us. It's the heart of who he is. So Paul says, if you want to be near and dear to God's heart, pray, pray that I might have an opportunity to reflect the character of God and how I am sent to people. So one, why do we pray for people that are sent and for outsiders? Because that's at the heart of who God is. And two, we, we pray for it because it's difficult, he says, for which I'm in chains. He's writing this message in prison. And Paul, above anybody, has the social capital in this situation to say, I've had it rough and it's still worth it. I'll read some long form text in Corinthians. He writes and he says, this is how hard it's been for me. He says, I've worked hard. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped more times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. 40 was seen as killing someone. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I face danger in cities and in deserts and on seas, and I face danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Paul says, but it's worth it. Pray that God might open more doors like that. The centrality of a focus of outside in for the people of God because God is ascending God who sends himself to find us. So even though it's difficult, we hear, here's what he calls us to do. Here's how we fight the centrality of self in not just our personal life, but our spiritual life as we pray for those who do it for a living, right? If you want to put it crassly, you pray for those who God sends. And at CBC, we have missionaries all over the world. So here's one really quick call to action. Pray for them. Because it's really difficult out of sight, out of mind to forget the work of God all over the world. To focus on your house because it's important <laughs> to focus on our church because it's important and we care for it, to focus on our communities. But Paul says, pray for me wherever I go that God might open a door, give me an opportunity to share faith. I think about our missionary partner in Romania, Julian. I've been there several times. 
Right now, he's kicking off a 100-person discipleship program with new believers, and he asked for prayer last week that we might pray that God might do a continued work in and create dedication and devotion. I pray for Peter and Margaret Hayes. They're our missionaries in, um, in, in Holland. And, and, and Peter is leading a uh, course in seminary all online through Zoom. And that's just difficult to do to talk Christology over the Zoom, you know? And he said, pray for me that I might do a good job. Mark Gray is actually leading a group of women training leaders in Eastern Europe so that they might be able to teach people about Jesus. I think about Mike and Susanna Wagner. It's a missionary in Holland as well. He's outside of Amsterdam. He actually, um, I went to Moody with him and he was actually in my wedding. I'm very much fond of this family. And they're building up. They started an office of um, a headquarters in, of pioneers in Europe so that they could build up and send out indigenous missionaries all over Europe. And they're just starting it now. They said, pray for us, that God might give us wisdom and people. Pray for the work of God happening other places and watch how God changes our hearts away from us to others. And then he goes on. Paul says, the mystery of Christ pray that I might make him known. I love that phrase. I think it's really important. So when he says the mystery of Christ, he talks about it in chapter one, two. He's speaking primarily in a first century world to a Gentile audience saying, hey, the mystery of Christ is that the story of the Old Testament points to salvation and redemption. It points to the idea that in the end, God wins. It points to the hope that we have not in a place and not in a king that rules on earth, but in one that rules forever. And, and, and that person that you've been wanting and waiting for, for out, throughout human history is here in the person of Jesus. It's no longer a mystery. And here's the shocker for the first century world Jewish person. It's not just Jews that are included. Gentiles get to come along too. And so he says, let me proclaim the mystery of Christ that I might make it known. Some of your versions say that I might proclaim it. I don't love that translation uh, because the word used there isn't just the word that's typically used for proclaiming or speaking. It actually is the word used when Paul um, talks about revealing or showing something, kind of like a hidden mystery. And so what Paul is literally sailing, saying here is that I want to go in different places and spaces and I want to take things that people think they know and I want to show them how Jesus is better. I want to show them Jesus in the middle of it. Even in my chains, might they, might they see the beauty and supremacy of Christ in the every single day. My daughter is, for the first time, understanding what Christmas is this year. So we take walks all the time, and, and just last week, my wife went to pick up a nativity set that she could only find at some store called At Home, and I think it's Christmas all year round, so I will not go in it. And and they went one evening last week, and it was really funny. She was at the in-laws' house, and I got clothes dirty or something, and the only pajamas that they had for her were these Santa pajamas from, I think, last year. And so she rocks into at-home Christmas capital of the world in these Santa pajamas, and she didn't know what Christmas was yet because she's two, and last year there was just fun balls on the tree that she could rip off and break. And so this year, we're trying to explain to her what Christmas is. And so my wife explains to her as they're driving there, hey, this is what Christmas is. It's tree and it's light and it's baby Jesus, right? And so now she walked into this Christmas hub and there's all these sparkling things and all these glitter and there's all these lights everywhere and she was blown away by the idea of Christmas for the first time. Something she saw last year but couldn't comprehend and now that she comprehends it, literally every morning we wake up, we walk outside, there's an advent box sitting on our uh, counter still because we put stuff up and it's sitting on our counter and she looks at me and she yells, Christmas now. And I say three weeks after Thanksgiving, right? 
And she says, Christmas now. And I'll say, no, 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 we're going to wait three weeks. But it's this beautiful anticipation and excitement. I get to see her understand something in a new way because we get to tell her about it. It's revealed in a way it wasn't before. This is what Paul is doing as he's walking and talking about Jesus. You thought it was this unknown God, he says in Acts, but let me tell you about Jesus. You think that this is the worst thing that's going to happen to me, but let me tell you about Jesus and why all that stuff I just read is worth it because God is beautiful and good. That we might pray that those around the world might reveal the truth and beauty and goodness of God in their everyday situations. That's what he says to pray for. But then he pivots. He pivots and he says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders making the most of the opportunities. And if you're reading this and if maybe we're not as familiar with the call to be witnesses of Jesus in our everyday, he says, it's not just my job. He takes it from it's my charge to it's your responsibility. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunities. What he says is it's not just my job to show people the beauty of Jesus, it's yours too. Because when we talk about the idea of God being a good God, what he says is simply that it's not just the paid staff's job to show people the goodness of Jesus. It's not just the called missionaries. We are all called as we remember God's goodness towards us. He's saying, do you know know why we focus on outsiders? Because you were one once before you were found. Growing up, my dad was never one for like father-son chats. We didn't have a whole lot of, you know, family meetings together. We called that dinner and it was just a lot of yelling. And uh, in a good way, because it's three boys around a table fighting for scraps of food. When my parents probably made all the food at Tom Thumb. And so (coughs) we... We have these loud meals, but not these like heart-to-heart moments, and I'm great with that. Um, but I remember when I started the eighth grade and when I started my senior year, he said, hey, as I'm walking out the door for school, this was his mantra, and maybe one day I'll get it tattooed somewhere on an arm or something, but, but he said, remember who you are and remember where you came from. And that stuck with me. It resonates with me as I read this text. I think Paul is saying, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunities. In the middle of that, I hear this resonating. Remember who you are and remember where you came from because you were once one of them before you were found. And this is the point Paul's getting to in this text. This is the big idea. He's saying essentially, pretty simply, that saved people are sent people. That saved people because they've experienced and seen the beauty of Jesus. Saved people are sent people. It's not something we cannot do. It's not something that's somebody else's job. It's not something that can be put off till later. Saved people are sent people. So while we're being formed from the inside, we are focused on the outside because we were there too. And it's about more than just us. It's about more than this, just, this, just this church. It's about more than just what God is doing in Flower Mound. It's about all of us recognizing, realizing, and acting on the opportunity that are given to us because we get the beauty of following Jesus. And so he says, save people or sent people. And here's how he says to do it. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Well, that phrase towards outsiders, I think that, that we really need to spend some time thinking about what that means. And when I was in college, there's this big push towards something called the missional movement that I'm kind of a big fan of. So just to go church-ish, not history, but the last 30 years. But the late 80s, there was this big kind of, um, you know, Bill Hybels asked, let's do these big mega churches. And if you build, it's called the attractional model for churches. If you build it, they will come. Field of dream, Kevin Costner's rah-rah, go team Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? 
And so we built these big buildings and we had these big concerts and it was all good. Please do not hear me. God used that to find people. That is fantastic. And then in the middle of that movement, late 90s-ish, you started people, you started seeing people say, well, maybe there's more than just building a big building and having people come in. And there's nothing wrong with that. What Paul is saying here is that it's more than just coming to church on Sunday. It's more than just showing up. What Paul is talking to people here is that your job is to reach out towards outsiders. Here's why I bring that up because that means we meet them on their turf. We don't expect them to meet them on ours. That's hard because that is uncomfortable. (laughs) That's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. I think about Jesus. My favorite stories in all of scripture is Mark 2 when he calls Matthew tax collector who nobody likes because he was a tax collector and he took the money of his own people and gave it to their oppressors. Really not a great dude you want to hang out with. Jesus goes to his house. He reclines at his table. And the other spiritual people said, how could you sit there? Do you not know this man? He said, I do, but this is why I'm here. If we're going to reach out towards outsiders, it's probably going to mean that we're going to be a little bit uncomfortable. And that doesn't mean that we stop coming to church. We need both. It's a balance of the two because we need to be refilled and then we need to pour that out on others as we show people the hope of Jesus because saved people are sent people. And so he says, you need to meet people where they are at because that's what, guess what? God did for you. And he says, when you do that, make the most of your opportunities. And this is a fundamental shift, I think, in how we think about our responsibility to share the gospel. Because when I think of evangelism, I have some really scary stories in my head of like trying to accost people in subways in Chicago, you know, on the way home from work. Like, hey, do you know Jesus? And they try to ignore me, but then I was told just to press in. That's just the devil rejecting, you know what I'm talking about? And I have these memories and and moments of kind of people on street corners yelling. That seemingly isn't what Paul's saying to do here. He does that sometimes, by the way. But I think the charge here, he says, literally make the most of opportunities. That, that word, the phrase making the most literally means to purchase up in the Greek. And we see it a couple other times, by the way. Galatians 3, when it, it's Christological, it, it talks about literally Jesus purchasing us up for salvation. But, but the implication there when it says to make the most or to purchase up is to take advantage of all the opportunities you have because there's a limited supply. Treat it like toilet paper in March, everybody, you know? He's saying that if you see your every opportunity as one to promote the goodness of Jesus, don't take that for granted. Whether you're in chains or whether you're at your desk, whether you're at your house or whether you're at somebody else's house, whether your kid's playing a little league basketball game and you want to just rip the head off of every other parent in the room because your kid's not getting enough playing time, even though he's not good at basketball, whatever that looks like to you. He's saying make the most of every single opportunity because here's the deal. When we see our every moment as opportunities for Jesus to be glorified and not in the ways that are awkward and not in the ways that are overbearing, we're going to get there in a second with wisdom. When we see it like that, what that does is it adds value to those moments where oftentimes we don't give value. It lets us take those moments and say, this is an opportunity that people might see God. How and where am I using that for his good? It's confirmation bias 101 in a good way, you know? It's kind of like if you are looking at buying a new car and you've settled on a black Honda Accord because you're sure that nobody has one because you've never seen one, right? And then you start driving down the street and you see 17 before you leave your driveway. You're like, oh, I didn't realize they were all out there. He's saying, treat it like this. 
that your every opportunity, your every interaction with others might be a place in which people might see the beauty of Jesus because saved people are sent people. And so saying use these things, these opportunities, and then he tells you how at the beginning. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom. This goes back into the street preachers on the corner. I don't think you're doing anybody any favors, by the way. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom. That word conduct there is literally means to, 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 to journey in life. It's the Proverbs word for to um, kind of take a step of faith day by day, if you will. So he says, conduct yourself, live every day with wisdom. My favorite definition of wisdom, shocking here, is going to be a sports analogy. Um, I think when we think about wisdom, I think of baseball. So you can ask a bunch of people in sports and they'll say single-handedly, the hardest thing to do in all of sports is to hit a baseball. It is. Because it's moving and it's moving fast. The average fastball in the major leagues gets to home plate in about 400 milliseconds, I think. So 0.4, um, 0.4, tenths of a second. Guys, I went to Moody, not math school, okay? So it, it gets there very quickly and you have less than half a second as a batter to find out what pitch it is, to figure out where that pitch is gonna be when it gets in your swing zone, and then to actually swing in a way to make contact. My point is that you could have the most beautiful swing in the world, but if you don't swing at the right time, it doesn't matter. The golf ball just sits there on the ground, swing whenever you want, today, tomorrow, or if you're Dustin Johnson in four hours, and he's gonna hit the ball because it's not gonna move. In baseball, it's not just about knowing what to do, it's knowing when to do it, and that really is what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing what to do and when to do it. And so he's saying, have wisdom towards outsiders and the opportunity God gives you. It means know when to do and what to do it, specifically in relation to others. Sometimes we buy into this false narrative that if I don't act the exact same around everybody, I'm lying to people, and that's not true. <laughs> because I act way different to my wife and my kid and my parents and my in-laws and our staff here, and that's a really good thing. But motivation doesn't change. It becomes um, a bit more hypocrisy uh, forward if I'm changing my motivation, if I'm changing the guiding principles. But the way that we show love and value often is we communicate with people where they are at, whether that's speaking two-year-old gibberish about Christmas or that's being up here with you guys right now. Because here's what I'll tell you. Good news at a bad time is not as good of news, right? I'll tell you an endearing story about Andy Zapata up here, the worship guy at CBC. So when Andy got married, he met this woman named Jamie. You've met Jamie. She sings the songs too. It's adorable. And uh, when he met Jamie, he actually, you know, they went to high school together. Uh, Andy knew Jamie because she was on the cheerleading squad. Guess who didn't know? Andy, Jamie. And uh, I had no idea that he existed. And they met a little later on, and he's like, we went to high school together. She's like, really? Are you, are you sure? We were in the same math class together. I just, I sat next to you. Yeah, nothing. I got nothing. And Andy would say, it's because Jamie dated these men that liked to lift weights and didn't have necks anymore. And if you look at Andy, not the case. So when Andy started dating Jamie, at the very beginning, he knew he was going to have to make a splash because his leash was probably pretty short and he was out kicking his coverage, okay? And so what he did on like their second date was he had a buddy pass on Southwest and so he said, hey, let's take a day date and fly to Galveston and hang out and eat some food and come back. And he did and it worked. They're married. And uh, so, you know, good for him. So two, three weeks ago, they have their first kid. AJ is eight or nine months, somewhere in there. And Andy said, you know what I'm going to do? He told me this probably a month ago. I'm going to plan that same trip and surprise Jamie. 
because it's been a lot with their first kid. I said, dude, that's a great idea. She's going to love it. There's no losing here. <clears throat> I, I did not think about things. Um, so he goes to tell Jamie the night before. He had got a babysitter. He had packed bags. She had no idea, right? She'd never spent a day or a night away from her child yet. That's a big deal. This is why you don't ask your guy friends these things, by the way, okay? So he goes to her the night before and says, hey, guess what? I planned this trip. I have everything taken care of. Here's your bag. Let's go. And she cries, and not in the overjoyed kind of way. There's a lot there. There's a lot to process about leaving your kid for the first time and attachment and what are we going to do? And they went and it was great. But guys, good news at bad times is less good news. Use wisdom and how we talk about Jesus to other people because it's good news, but people need to see the goodness of Jesus in that moment. That's why we do love packs. Because to talk about Jesus to kids that are hungry without feeding them while we're full is really a wrong way to say that God is good and he loves you. What we talk about when we talk about leaning in towards outsiders is meeting them where they're at and using wisdom and how God needs to speak to them and what that looks like and over time how I can share the beauty and goodness of God over days and months and years. So he says, might your heart grow towards outsiders and use wisdom when you talk to them about the ways of Jesus. And then he carries it forward one step farther. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer anyone. He says, let your speech there. It's the Greek word, really vague word for, um, for word. And so it literally means anything from a casual conversation to I'm going to walk you through the Romans road to the person and work of Jesus. Same word that describes him in John 1. So he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And we've talked about this before, but grace is the currency of our gospel. I need it. You need it. Everyone needs it. We do not operate out of a lens of fairness. We operate out of a lens of grace because God was not fair to me when he saved me. He's so much better than that towards us. And so everything we do then, how we use wisdom is we live out grace towards others. And here's what I know. I know that sometimes we juxtapose grace and truth. I know that we think we can be gracious or we can be truthful. And I disagree with that fundamentally. I think we can say truthful things harshly or we can say truthful things graciously. And it doesn't make it any less true. I was listening to a podcast this week and one woman put it this way. She said, do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference? And I love that. However we talk, whether it's a hard conversation or a challenging conversation or an encouraging conversation, have that conversation through the lens of grace. It is our guiding principle in all the conversations we have. It's our guiding principle as we live out our faith. Because love what C.S. Lewis said when we have conversations with others. He says, there are no ordinary people. You just have never talked. You have never talked to a mere mortal because we all carry with us the imago Dei, the image of God. So he says, when we speak and have these conversations, use wisdom and let grace be your guiding principle. Man, I need that now in the light of our current context and culture, that grace might guide the speech of the people of God, that we might more care to make a difference than to make a point. It's that situation where I'm sure you've had it happen maybe once or maybe twice, when you have this internal dialogue going in your head. The other day we were driving home and my wife noticed something after six years of marriage, she never noticed. I have conversations in my head when I drive and I mouth the words and use my hand motions because I speak with my hands. And she said, are you having a conversation right now? I said, oh yeah. She said, to whom? I said, that's between me and the person in my head. And, and then we're driving a couple days later and said, you're doing it again. You have another conversation. I said, oh yeah, <laughs> so just this idea. And then you put in these situations and have you ever had it happen where you've said exactly what you want to say in your head? Every time I've done that, I walk away feeling not great 
because I'm trying to make a point that emphasizes my goodness, not make a difference. Paul says, season everything with grace. And, and when we say season with salt there, I love how he words it. It's an idiom in the Greek. Uh, salt is used in three ways in the scriptures. It's used to preserve something or to sterilize something or to season something. The latter is what's meant here. If you know anything about cooking whatsoever, do you know why salt is so good? Salt makes things taste better, but salt doesn't intrinsically have a flavor. What salt does is it draws out the moisture in whatever you're cooking. So if you have a good cut of meat, you put salt on that, and it causes the moisture to draw out and then slowly sink back in. Literally, salt makes things taste more like they're supposed to taste in the first place. It makes things better. It makes things taste more like they're supposed to taste. So when he says, use your words like seasoned salt, what he's saying is, might your words reflect what we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus, what we're supposed to live into as image bearers of our creator that rightly rule over his creation, that love all, that show grace to all, and that points people to a God who's both those things all the time. Might you and your words point people to the overwhelming narrative of the goodness of God and what creation is supposed to be, seasoned with salt. I love the other idea of this text is that it's not just there for you to do it um, kind of panly, if you will. The idiom here also carries with it the idea that you speak lively, that you have a passion behind what you say. So not just speak in life-giving ways that point people to a life-giving God, but speak in a way that, that, that literally makes people believe what you're saying because here's the deal, believe what you're saying. It's a show on NPR I used to listen to in the weekends. It's called Away With Words. You guys have listened to it before. Guys, it's awesome. It is one person in San Diego and one person in San Francisco. And they have this show for an hour that talks about words. People call in and say, hey, my husband pronounces it tomato and I pronounce it tomato. What's happening there? And I know what you're thinking. That sounds terribly boring. It is. But the good thing is how passionate these people talk about words how passionate they talk about origins. Guys, the punny jokes in the show alone are worth tuning in for, and I keep listening, not because I care how people pronounce words or I care about the etymological origins of whatever word, fill in the blank here. I listen because the passion by which they talk about words. Paul's saying when you talk about Jesus, use that kind of passion so that people might know that you believe what you're talking about, that God has changed you and that he wants to change others. And then he ends by saying, so in the end, no, you should always have an answer for everyone. And so he brings it back to, it's not just my job as Paul, it's your job to live in such a way that you can answer the question, why do you have hope here? Why do you love here when nobody does? How can you be gracious in this situation, in this climate? What's your foundation for these things? Jesus. Live in a way where people ask the question and your answer is, because I've been transformed by the love of Christ. Saved people are sent people. <laughs> There's a phrase I heard, specifically when it comes to preaching. Because at the end, you're going to read this and be like, it's my responsibility. And, and we feel the weight and pressure of it. But here's the beauty of the grace of God. God tagged us with this task, which blows my mind, by the way, because if I'm God and I'm perfect and I'm figuring out a way to advance the best good that's ever been in the world, I'm not using Chuck. <laughs> you know, I can find someone better. But God says, I'm going to use broken people because it magnifies my power, glory, and majesty. And, and so sometimes we can come to this text and be like, well, I'm not doing enough, I'm not giving enough, I'm not, and then really get into a shame place pretty quickly. And there's this balance between God has charged us with the responsibility, but he's still in control. 
Specifically in preaching, someone said there's two main camps in some ways of thinking about the sovereignty of God. There's Arminiusts and there's Calvinists, right? So what that means is if you come from an Arminius bent, you, you just kind of believe that man has more free will. And if you come from a Calvinist bent, you just mean that God has all the will, right? And, and you, you know, God chooses and God saves you. It's not your decision. And Arminius would believe that you chose God, that you can lose salvation. Um, and, and it's a fun little debate on both sides that people outside of seminary shouldn't get into. But anyway, I heard something this week and someone said, in terms of preaching and the weight and the effectiveness of this task, they said, you want to work, you want to prepare like you're an Arminiist and you want to sleep on Saturday nights like you're a Calvinist, right? <laughs> the idea that we're going to seize every opportunity and trust God with the results. That we're going to seize every opportunity with wisdom to love people and speak grace into situations and trust that God is in control. That's what the church does. That's what we do as we reach out to others as saved people are being sent by God. It's the Penn Jillette moment. Uh, if you don't know this, it's a pretty widespread used example now. But I go back to just the idea that a whole group of people think it's just offensive to share faith or it's not my job or how could I do this? Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller, he is an atheist. He's an outspoken atheist. And it went viral probably a decade ago. It's a minute and a half video. You can look it up. But he, he basically gets on there and he says, you know, I, I don't mind when Christians try to convert me. Because if you really believe in the hope of Jesus, if you really believe that eternity's at stake, how much do you have to hate me to not tell me that message? You know, save people or send people. And he goes back to this idea that it's the most loving thing we can do. And again, not street preacher side of the road, but every day, every opportunity to show the beauty of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? I think it means finding those opportunities. I think it's changing how we shift from, I'm not just at home, I'm not just at work, I'm not just at the basketball court, I'm not just filling the blank here. I think we look for those intentionally. That's why it's a Bible study method called the Swedish method that I'm a fan of. It's just five questions to walk through if you have a chunk of text in a group of people. And the five questions are, you know, what stands out in this text? What, um, what questions come up from this text? Where do I see Jesus in this text? How do I apply this text to my life? What does it call me to do? And the last question is my favorite. Who needs to hear what God is telling me today? So often we forget that part. So often it culminates on, how is this for me? And we don't ask that next question. How is God asking me to share this truth? Because he's worth it. Because it's our job. Because we get to share the hope of Jesus with people. And when we focus on outsiders coming into the kingdom of God, it makes us all better and healthier. Because we can't stand up under the weight of something only being about us. So what do we do? I love that we're living in a time and place where it's never been easier to share our faith. You can literally click a button on social media that I kind of made fun of earlier on and says is wicked, but you can use it for good things, right? So you can share this if you want to, or don't share this, share something way better, right? There are so many good things you can share, blogs and videos and sermons. There are so many ways we can talk about the goodness of God as we share things, as we look for opportunities, as we just don't shy away from them. Because it's hard. Because it's challenging. Paul makes no bones about that. But he says it's worth it in the end. I think through The Rise of Christianity, I've quoted this book a few times, but there's a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And he just talks through the idea um, that a social movement numbering about 1,000 people in the first century could grow to 25 or 35 million by the fourth century. And he says it's because they cared for other people. It's because they took charity with widows and orphans. It's because they loved people really well. It's because they built out their social networks and they talked about what Jesus was doing in and through them. 
says he talks about how literally the movement of God went from a people of God saying, I'm focused on sharing the goodness of Jesus everywhere I go with every single opportunity. And in three centuries, it took over the world. Guys, I'd take Flower Mount at this point, you know? I would. Because here's what Paul says at the end of this book about being formed in Christ. The formation of your soul and spirit in Jesus doesn't end with your soul and spirit. We get the marvelous privilege to share that with others. And it starts with us because saved people are sent. People, let me pray for us.